After my humanitarian trip, I was invited back to go inside Aleppo and photograph the combat, and I accepted the Carmel Jebel area of Aleppo, which was basically the Stalingrad section. It was totally decimated. It's the day that you were going to go home is when they got you, right? It was on my way home, 45 minutes from the Turkish border. They got me. Welcome to the Interesting People podcast. Today, I'm joined by Matthew Schreier, the author of The Dawn Prayer, or How to Survive in a Secret Syrian Terrorist Prison. Matthew, how's it going? It's going great, man. Thank you for having me. So the book just came out this April, right? Right. For people that haven't heard about the book, you were captured by... The Al-Nusra Front, Al-Qaeda in Syria. They got me on New Year's Eve 2012, and I escaped July 29th, 2013. The Aleppo area, right? Right. Inside and around Aleppo for about 18 days. So beforehand, you were doing sales and just decided to become an independent photographer and just headed overseas, right? It wasn't that reckless. I had my own consulting business. For the year before that I went, I was traveling, going to all these different countries, doing photography, seeing how good I was. Then I went over there a month before I got kidnapped. I wasn't doing combat photography. I was working with the refugees and photographing wounded FSA soldiers and stuff like that. And that's where the book opens with, that group. Right. After my humanitarian trip, I was invited back to go inside Aleppo and photograph the combat, and I accepted. The book starts out in the Carmel Jebel area of Aleppo, which was basically like the Stalingrad section. I mean, it was totally decimated. That's where I got really the photographs that I went there for. So the way that you ended up getting captured in the book, it's the day that you were going to go home is when they got you, right? It was on my way home. (laughs) 45 (laughs) minutes from the Turkish border, they got me. And I have to say, I think one of the reasons the book works so well, for the same reason I think you're alive today, is your ability to humanize and bring humor to the things that happen in your life. Especially with the opening when you're just a General Muhammad, the way that you dealt with that. Thinking on your feet so quickly, it was all about just making them like you. Yeah, but like I mentioned later on in the book, when I was a kid... I got into some trouble and I ended up in like a county jail where I was basically the skinniest, smallest guy on the tier. And, you know, I was a tough kid, but I wasn't that tough. Most of the other inmates looked like grown men. So the only way I could really survive there with my dignity, at least, was by making everyone like me. So I basically applied that train of thought to that situation because I knew, all right, if I can make these guys like me, they're not going to torture me. They'll probably treat me pretty well. And lucky me, General Muhammad, who ran the prison and was in the room, and was a brutal killer, as you learn in the book, also had a great sense of humor. By making him laugh and joking around with him, I built a rapport, and, you know, as the reader will see, for the first month and six days till I got caught trying to escape, he treated me basically like a VIP. Nobody touched me, nobody could insult me, and it's just a really, really unique situation compared to every other story that you always hear of Americans in the same situation. I think that's one of the things that makes the book so terrifying, because your early capture was a little bit more easy on you, that when things get bad, it just... I knew reading the book that you, you make it out of this thing but it's like you were in so much danger it's absolutely incredible there are points where it seems totally hopeless but on the flip side you can't let yourself think like that when you're in the situation you always have to try to stay as positive as possible and you know faith and hope are a big factor well another part of the suspense of the book is they don't know you're jewish that had to have been very difficult well Yes and no. To do the job and work with the FSA for the previous 18 days, it's not like I was running around telling them I was Jewish. So I had my story all worked out. You know, my last name sounds German. 
which is why I knew I can go over there and pull it off. During my interrogation, one of the first questions you know you see that they ask is, what religion are you? And then what are your parents? I just said, I'm a Christian. My grandparents all came over from Germany. And that kind of adds to the layer of humor to the book, because now you have like an American Jew pretending to be a German-American Christian who then goes on to pretend to be a Sunni Muslim and pulls it off for seven months before escaping. When you first get captured, you kind of do a couple of clever things to figure out who has you by asking if they have smokes and then by swearing. Is that stuff you picked up while you were being a photographer in the area? I knew that that's a big no-no in, in Islam. But when I was on the front with the FSA, most of those guys smoke. Probably like two-thirds of the, the militia group I was with smoked like chimneys. That was a good way to basically figure out who had me. I ask for a smoke. If they say no, then you know you're with extremists because smoking is a sin to them. The nicknames that you gave everybody were really, that helped kind of like read the book. One of the things that helped Muhammad <laughs> stand out is you didn't give Muhammad a nickname. So whenever you saw Muhammad, like he immediately like, oh, that's Muhammad. But a lot of the others like Green yeah. Eyes and everyone else. Were those the nicknames you used over there? Or did you simplify any of those for the book? Pretty much most of them I made up over there. It works out for the book because a lot of these guys all have the same name. So <laughs> even if I didn't do it, I would have probably had to figure out something to do. But I pretty much gave all of them nicknames, mainly the guards, because it's just a good way to raise your morale and bring them down. And the funny thing is, when I came home and I was debriefed by the FBI and the CIA and the DOD and the State Department, the FBI actually admitted that they're going to like train their people to do that oh. <laughs> because they were just like fascinated about the nicknames. They were asking the same question, like, why did you do it? They're like, did it, did it raise your morale? And I'm like, yeah, it turns them into a joke. It's just a funny thing to do. Little Judge is the one that really sticks out in my head. My favorite one is Pony Boy. Pony Boy, yeah. <laughs> or Dingleberry. Dingleberry makes yeah. everybody laugh, though. <laughs> you met so many people. I mean, that's the, I guess, the, the little bit of a misnomer in the title that some people may not know at the end where you say prison like singular you got moved around like all over the place during those seven months it was six prisons one of them i was in twice every transfer it's one of the most intense parts of the book one of the transfers when there's a gunfight you know you got to realize like we're their most valuable prisoners so when they move us they basically take out all the muscle you have these giant escorts with motorcycles and trucks with guys on the back of them transfers are extremely dangerous because you never know like what's going to happen if someone's going to try to take you or, or what i want to talk to you about your two main cellmates and how incredible the struggle was i think people reading the telephone think that your biggest problem was going to be your captors it turned out being an Another American you were yeah. with and the Moroccan. Uh, that's what I think is like so amazing about the book is you pick up the book and you expect, all right, here's an American and Al-Qaeda are the bad guys. And it's like, yes, I am the American, hopefully the good guy. Al-Qaeda, <laughs> they're the bad guys. But my cellmate, the other American, I describe him as the worst guy. Because I think the, the American who sides with Al-Qaeda takes their side over their own is worse than them. Because at least with Al-Qaeda, they're fighting for their ideology and what they believe in. But the other American, he was just siding with them because he was a coward. And he thought that that was the only way to keep himself safe. And there's nothing lower than that. And he was the worst part of the experience because I'm locked in the room with another American who's supposed to be my brother. I can't even tell this guy that I'm Jewish because I know he's going to snitch me out in two seconds to try to get some favor with them. And that's what it was like being with him, getting set up to be tortured, having him trying to convince me that they were telling me they were going to kill me because I didn't understand Arabic and he did when they were saying something completely different. It was just... A nightmare. And then on the other side, there's the Moroccan, who's basically a psychopath maniac who's too crazy even for the guys who wear suicide belts as fashion accessories. He went over there to join them, and they were like, no, nope, you're a little too crazy. And they shot him in the leg and tossed him in the room with me and Theo. And he basically became Theo's owner, turned him into his property, and uh, made him get down on his knees to him and give him massages in front of like wounds full of soldiers. 
And that's very symbolic over there. So it caused a lot of problems. I mean, it made my life hell. I even think in a certain point, you get the feeling from the book where they thought they were doing you a solid by sticking you with English speakers. But it seemed like any time they stuck you with an English speaker, those were the worst people. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's what's funny. Yeah, because General Muhammad, you put me in with Theo so I'd have somebody to talk to. As soon as he does it, I'm like, hey, can you put me back with the soldiers now? Because like I was friends with those guys. I love those guys. And he's like, no, no, no. You can stay in here and have somebody to talk to. And it turns out, like I say in the book, he's basically the journalist you know, what Gomer Pyle was to Marines in Full Metal Jacket. It was just like the worst experience you could possibly imagine being in. There were so many things, like, the moment someone reads the first chapter of this book, I can't imagine that they'll put it down. Your TED Talk you gave seemed to be a good recapture of, like, the opening of the book. How'd you get involved with doing a TED Talk? I got involved with a speaking bureau, because I do a lot of speaking engagements. Eagle Scout talent. So, when I first came home, I didn't really have any experience speaking. He said, "All right, well, we need to get some video for you. So, he set that up, and I flew out to Orcas Island, which is, like, one of the most beautiful places in the world. It's in the San Juans. And I put together a TED Talk on how, you know, I basically used humor to break the ice with these guys. You know, as you can see from the audience laughing their, <laughs> you know, their butts off, it was a big success. Now I do a big engagements all over the place and it worked out really well. It's got to be funny to know that you told a joke that saved your life. Did I tell a joke or I was just joking around? I guess that's a good point, but it, it did get you a nickname yeah. real quickly. That uh, Happy New Year yeah. in particular sticks out yeah, in my yeah. head. And I was just off the cuff. When General Muhammad names you Jamah, Jamah is Friday, which is a very special holiday. So that's like, you know, a term of affection and respect, which is unprecedented in these types of situations. So I do have a question about the structure of the book. You mentioned earlier, as a kid, ended up doing a little bit of time. You saved that for the second to last chapter, it feels like. And it's a really big revelation in the book. What kind of thought process went behind placing it that late into the book? Well, because that was a long time ago. And I didn't want to stigmatize myself by introducing myself to the reader as like this guy who went to jail when he was 16. You know, I'm 34 when this is going on. And after I graduated from high school, I totally changed my life. I went to college. I hit the books. I was a dean's list student, double major. I've never gotten in trouble since. So I wanted the reader to really get to know me for who I am as an adult and not judge me this late in life for what I did as a kid. On top of that, I wanted people to see that, you know, I actually learned from my mistakes that I made when I was a kid and not just that, you know, okay, what I did was wrong, but I can also apply the lessons learned to my current situation and other situations in life. It was the absolute perfect time because I actually tore up half of my questions that I was going to have for you because that chapter, it's like, well, how would you know so well how to break out? Of oh, okay. Oh, how did he? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I don't think this ruins anything, but people are probably like, well, what'd you do when you were a kid? Nothing <laughs> I burglarized a few houses with my friends like an idiot. And uh, when you can break into places, if you apply yourself, you can break out of them. And that was the logic that I basically applied to the situation I was in. It's so incredible how a mistake, if you use it properly, can really end up saving your life down the road. It's almost like everything is predetermined, yes. it feels like for me. Like, I never really was a big spiritual guy on predetermination and, and stuff like that. But it just feels like, yes, everything does happen for a reason. And if you can, you know, be astute, you can figure out what those reasons are and use them to your advantage. I'm also kind of curious. So you wrote the book now that follows after the fact that you gave the TED Talk, you were on 60 Minutes. And also, and I, I had a chance to watch a little bit of this, it was dramatized on National Geographic, locked up abroad. What was it like seeing someone cast as you? Believe it or not, I never watched it. Oh, you never watched it? I don't like reenacting one and two the interview was kind of artificial so everything is true but they were telling me how to say it because you know it's a scripted show and I was getting so frustrated while I was doing the interview because I every 30 seconds the director was cutting me off I'm like okay can you say it like this can you say it like this and I was just like oh so I was just like you know what I'm not watching that 
<laughs> but I've heard good things about it. <laughs> okay, so I was so curious because even in the trailer for the episode, the look on your face, if you're really falling, it's like, is he smirking? So now I kind of understand. <laughs> they got an okay-ish lookalike for you. Did he have his head shaved throughout the entire episode? And I wondered if he sh- his head shaved the whole thing because I'm like, you know, they didn't really give me haircuts oh, yeah. <laughs> or any trips to the beauty parlor while I was there. I did shave my head before I escaped because I got razors out of them and I wanted to change my appearance. Yeah, as far as like the whole other seven months, I kind of look like Larry Fine. Yeah. <laughs> so this is your first book, right? You even said in the beginning of the book you didn't really like photography, but you knew you were good at it. Is that something similar to like writing the book where you saw all these other people? Your story was packaged in either little talks or interviews and now in that little uh, TV thing. This is your own extended take of your story. Was that a big part of wanting to write the book? I wrote a lot when I was younger, when I was a student. I always wrote in the same type of voice because I, I did creative writing classes and you know I used to try to sound eloquent and do the whole thing and it never really worked out and then one day I just wrote the way I talk and all the kids in the classroom were laughing and when the dumbest one like the jack comes up and goes how do you do that it's just like all right you know what you're basically a majority of the population so I got something here (laughs) so when I came home I hung out with David Rode for a little bit and I don't know if your listeners know David Rode is the Times journalist who got kidnapped by the Taliban for seven months and allegedly escaped but nobody believes it they think the New York Times paid for him when I was sitting down with him I learned a lot from Dave and Dave wrote a book he got 750 grand for and it like failed miserably. One of the reasons why I think it failed is because like Dave's kind of a nerd. You know, I don't want to tell me, but Dave's like, he's a nerd. And I was just like, all right, you know, if I want my book to be successful, I have to like do the opposite of what this guy did. So I'm just going to be myself. Curse a lot and basically tell my story the way I would tell it if I was sitting in a bar with a bunch of guys drinking some beers. I got my computer back from the FBI like a month and a half after I got home and I went to Bed Bath & Beyond that day, bought a desk, bought a chair, and I started writing the next day. And I finished it in like 10 months. And the reason it took so long to get it published was because of a lot of different aspects and people in the movie business and whatnot who were trying to hijack the story from me and they didn't want to help me get representation or get the book published because they wanted to keep it all to themselves and it kind of put me in a hole. But once I sold the book to Ben Bella, which is like a really great publishing house, they gave me all the freedom in the world. The owner saw the potential in the book and he just let me do my thing. And my editor too, I got to say, Alexa Stevenson was like huge because she was right in tune because if you're not in sync with my voice it's going to be hard and she had like the sense of humor and the personality to just do it who had the suggestion of a little disclaimer at the beginning like hey this book's going to get rough and it's going to get nasty <laughs> that was the lawyer of the publishing <laughs> <house>. <laughs> yeah i always like thought maybe i should put some kind of disclaimer on there but as soon as legal went through it they're like you know what you should definitely have him put like an author's note in the beginning of the book <laughs> and it's so funny like two people wrote like a test one for me to give me an idea of what it should look like and in it both of them are like all right i'm an a-hole but blah, blah. and i'm like look man why why does everyone call me an a-hole i was like i'm not exactly locked up in the land of milk and honey i can't be a nice guy all the time i'm not an a-hole i was just like i'm gonna just write it tell tell like why i may appear to be an a-hole sometimes that's kind of where the author's note came from another great question it was a fun tone setter for the book i'm kind of curious so are you interested in writing another book after this or is this your one book no i'm gonna write another book i already started it and i have some other projects in the works and some other conversations taking place no i'm not gonna like write it in 10 months like i did for the first one i'm gonna take my time on this one so hopefully in the next couple of months there'll be some announcements made and i'll be hitting phase two you now do speeches for the military to talk about how to deal being captured using your experience like your book's almost like a textbook now for how to deal with that it's 
the thing I love doing the most in this world. I mean, I love working with our military. Our soldiers are the best. Mostly work with the Army. I've spoken to the Marines and the Marine Corps League as well. And I just basically do speaking engagements. I get on stage and I tell the story in a one-hour nutshell in a perspective where just in case anybody ever gets captured, you know, they can go in there with some aces up their sleeves, just like with the things we talked about before with cursing or smoking and, and basically not have to learn the long, dangerous, hard way that I did. It's, it's a really rewarding feeling when you get to take something that's, that's this horrible and, and use it to maybe help somebody else and especially somebody who's fighting for our country. It's really like my pride and joy in this world. Actually, uh, one kind of little quick extra question. Do you still have the ski cap? I don't remember if you ever lost the ski cap that was such a big part no, of the book I, I took the hat with me and i have the mess too that iman gave me who was my friend when i got transferred how we switched yeah those things that we used to pray with so I, I took those things and i still have them that's the other thing you you kept touch with people using skype and other ways do you still keep in touch with anybody yeah we're all buddies on facebook man me and five of the guys have survived of the soldiers who I ended up locked in a room with. We're all Facebook friends. The only one that speaks fluent English is Ali, so we talk constantly. We're, you know, he'll always be one of my best friends. Oh, that's absolutely incredible. Maybe one of these days you guys will play actual volleyball instead of what was happening in the cell. <laughs> yeah, when it's safe in Syria in about 50 years. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Thank you so much for this interview. I'm going to tell everybody, read this book. It's absolutely phenomenal. It's impossible to put down. I end every interview with the exact same question. I'm curious to see what your answer for this is going to be. What has you excited? What are you looking forward to? My life is such a whirlwind, man. I never know what to expect. You know, I'm in talks to get a movie done. And the director whose name I heard is like the best one you could possibly imagine. And the producer is just phenomenal. Like he's one of the best that's ever been. So if I can get these guys attached, everything's going to be golden, pony boy. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I'm hoping for. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Thanks a lot, man.